Hey, everyone. I'm David Chalian, the CNN political director. This is The Daily DC. It has been a crazy few days since Joe Biden had that commanding victory in South Carolina, raised a ton of money in his campaign, and actually lost several opponents. Steyer, Buttigieg, now Klobuchar, out of the race. Buttigieg and Klobuchar endorsing Joe Biden and will appear with him this evening. It has not been a quiet Super Tuesday Eve, if you will. I've got two incredible guests to discuss all of these developments with. In just a few minutes, I'll be talking with Karen Finney. She's a CNN political commentator. But first, my colleague Abby Phillips, CNN political correspondent. Abby, you've been covering the Pete Buttigieg campaign uh, for some time now, and uh, it is now a former uh, Pete Buttigieg campaign. Um, can you uh, – we've learned that Amy Klobuchar is dropping out right now. So I just want to get your sense right now of this consolidation behind Joe Biden that we are currently witnessing sort of by the hour since those South Carolina results came in. It has happened so quickly. And I think it is just a reflection of the rapidly shifting dynamics in the Democratic field, where so many of the candidates are now evaluating two things. They they are evaluating their own political futures, how they will be viewed based on their actions in the next uh, day and se- six, seven days. Uh, and they're also evaluating what is uh, the possibility of a Bernie Sanders running away with Super Tuesday delegates? And I think that that is that is something that basically shifted uh, in the time from when polls opened in South Carolina to when we got results. Uh, that shifting that that ch- thinking really shifted dramatically. I think we saw Pete Buttigieg leading the charge on this because unlike a lot of the other candidates in the race right now, he is the one with the most clear uh, eye on his own political future. He does not want to be seen as a spoiler. He does not want to be seen as someone uh, who made it more difficult for uh, another candidate who has a better chance than he does to be the nominee. And so that is why ultimately he went first. Uh, And as we've seen, it is touching off a little bit of a domino effect with Amy Klobuchar dropping out of the race. And I think that it's going to make the next 24 hours extremely unpredictable. Here's my overall question, though, before I then pick your brain on just Buttigieg specifically. But here's my question. So Joe Biden has a convincing win in South Carolina. He raises $11 million over a 36-hour period so far, more money than he's ever raised in this whole campaign in that kind of period. And he's getting a ton of endorsements. He's getting uh, folks to drop out of the race. Uh, Since the South Carolina results, Steyer, Buttigieg, Klobuchar, all in his lane, out of the race. He's getting some of them to actually endorse him. All of that is true. And he's getting a ton of other endorsements, right? Like the establishment is just piling on. All of that is true, but does that amount to tomorrow on Super Tuesday that Bernie Sanders still may not have impressive victories and a significant delegate lead? We really don't know, but it is the last big effort on the part of the so-called centrist to to mount uh, an opposition to this other wing of the party. I mean, if they had not done this today, I think it would be almost certain that Bernie Sanders would have run away with it. And so it is the best that they can do. And it's probably better than Biden even ever imagined that uh, the ability to raise uh, that kind of money in a really short period of time was not necessarily something he's demonstrated up until this point. And also uh, the willingness of other moderates to to basically say, we think 
this guy is our best shot, I think is uh, a, a new dynamic. But it's also helped by Michael Bloomberg, because I think it's a reflection of the fact that a lot of the other candidates know that Bloomberg is not going to get out. And so if Bloomberg remains in the race, it's even more important for them to strengthen uh, the non-Sanders, non-Bloomberg candidate. And that person is Joe Biden. Now, what Bloomberg hasn't done that these other candidates have done so far is appear on a ballot. And so he may come to his own different set of conclusions uh, or similar conclusions tomorrow night when he sees vote returns when he does appear on a ballot. They they can only hope. I mean, I think the Democratic Party is hoping that what happens after tomorrow is that if Bloomberg doesn't do well, he decides it's time to call it a day. At least the non-Sanders side Uh, of the Democratic Party. The non-Sanders side of the Democratic Party. But I mean, it's really unclear if that is going to happen. Um, Just because, you know, this is someone who decided after, you know, after deciding against a presidential run, jumps back in at the last second, has already invested in that short period of time over half a billion dollars. I think uh, just sort of grinding all of that to a screeching halt on Wednesday morning is, uh, you know, I think it would be extraordinary if that were to happen, but I'm not entirely convinced that it will. Um, Before I let you go, I want to get a sense from you. Just explain to our listeners what it is like to cover a campaign when it comes to an end like that. (laughs) Like what what occurs? um, What was your how you know, you're reporting out with people and sources who are clearly very upset at the outcome and yet they still have to provide you information because they want to provide context. And what is that when you're going at a pace of 100 miles an hour, visiting all these states, following this candidate around and then it's just over? Yeah, it's really strange. It's weird. In the last few days, you felt a sense of nostalgia waving over everyone that you were talking to at the rallies. It, You know, I mean, campaign aides are telling you with one side of their mouth that everything is going really well. They're in it through March 10th. Every, you know, they're going to be here. And then on the other side of the ma- their mouth, they're taking selfies and, uh, you know, just trying to commemorate these final moments of the campaign. And I will tell you, Saturday night at the Buttigieg rally, he gave that speech and it felt to me like the end. You you knew it in the way that he gave the speech. Uh, how This was when how, the returns had come in. He was in Columbia. Saturday night. Right? He yes. was in he was actually in Raleigh, oh, North, in Raleigh Carolina, North Carolina. And uh, he had come out after a very protracted delay to uh, give this speech. And sources were telling me they were frantically rewriting his speech, trying to figure out what tone he should take. And ultimately, the tone was uh, it, it, that he was still in it, that he wanted to still win. But it started to take this more broad general tone. And it felt to me like the end. He uh, it was not one of his best speeches. Frankly, it was not convincing to me as someone who's listened to him a lot. And um, at the end of the night, you know, people are milling around and just, you know, trying to take in these last few moments. They know. But I, I will say with the Buttigieg folks, um, they are all just happy to be here. None of them expected this campaign to get to this point. And so unlike some campaigns that come to a really messy, uh, nasty end, this campaign did not end that way. And you feel it in the way that his staff, uh, I think they feel really good about where they ended up. Abby Phillip, thank you so much for your incredible work in covering that campaign. Obviously, you're going to be an integral part of our coverage going forward in this campaign season. But thanks for all that you've done already. And thanks so much for being here today. Oh, happy to be here. 
And now I turn to Karen Finney, a CNN political commentator, a former Democratic National Committee official and a former uh, member of Hillary Clinton's 2016 campaign staff, among many other credentials over her career. Uh, Karen, thank you so much for being here. Great to be with you. So, uh, Karen, first, just uh, I was just talking to Abby Phillip a little bit about this, uh, but just to get your sense of where we are, I am having a hard time remembering a day where there's been such <laughs> like rapid developments in the race. I mean, just the, these last 36 hours of a commanding victory for Joe Biden in South Carolina, raising $11 million since then, something he has not been able to do this whole time, raise money like that. Uh, now, Steyer, Buttigieg, Klobuchar, all out of the race. We're learning Buttigieg and Klobuchar are both going to be in Dallas tonight with Joe Biden to formally give their endorsements uh, to the former vice president. Um, this is a lot at one time. What do you what does this moment mean for Joe Biden? And does it translate into success at the ballot box tomorrow? Well, certainly to the last question, we'll have to see for a whole host of reasons. You know, it is part of the challenge. Let's just Putting aside the endorsements, you know, uh, Joe Biden had a fantastic night on Saturday night. He revitalized his campaign. It was clear going into Saturday that he retooled, I mean, his message. He was fighting, right? You could see it. You could feel it. Can he keep that up, I think, is the big question. What Joe Biden do we see on the stage tonight in Dallas? I assume we'll see a fired-up guy. But is he going to be able to convey the energy that people have been talking about for the last couple of months in terms of where's the fight? Where's the, you know, where's that guy that we know? So I think that's the biggest question for Biden going forward. Because if he can, I suspect all of these things can conspire to... Give him a pretty good night on Tuesday night. Will it be enough to overtake Senator Sanders in the delegate count? Unclear. Uh, But certainly he has a much better chance having done so well in South Carolina. And look, you know, we've talked about this with the consolidation of the Klobuchar, Pete Buttigieg, you know, sort of those folks who are looking to moderates. They now have fewer choices. So if they're looking at their options, they're looking at Joe Biden and Senator Sanders and Senator Warren. Uh, it's more likely, I would think, that they would go with Sen- with uh, Vice President Biden. And, you know, voters like to be part of the comeback story and give the lift and be the ones who put you over the top or got you back to the top. Pick your metaphor. They like to be with a winner. Absolutely. And and they like to be, say, we helped you get there. Yeah, no doubt about that. Um, I mean, obviously, the African-American vote was a huge part of uh, his victory in South Carolina. And what the campaign is looking forward to tomorrow is that across some of these states, there is a sizable portion of the electorate, uh, maybe not as sizable as South Carolina, where it was 56 percent, according to Exit But in Alabama in 2016, it was 54 percent. But even in places like uh, Tennessee or North Carolina, it's more than a quarter of the of the vote. I mean, it's much more than the national uh, average of uh, African-American turnout. So uh, I um, do you think that um, that is the calculation that the Biden camp was making that it would be the African-American vote to revitalize his candidacy? Absolutely. And, you know, we subject of a lot of conversation. You know, I've done a lot of work in South Carolina. And one of the things I can tell you is and you know this, 
African-Americans in the South in general, I also know this from Stacey Abrams' gubernatorial race in Georgia, are more conservative than people think. And that is a mistake that progressives and the progressive movement and even Democrats have made for a very long time. And as we learned in 2016, there were African-Americans who said, you know what? You're taking me for granted. I'm voting for Jill Stein. I'm not voting. So, you know, I think there is an element of having learned that lesson that you can't take the black vote for granted and the difference that black women make when they show up in an electorate. So I think that is a really big part of the story. No question going into Super Tuesday. You've got African-Americans in Texas. I mean, in lots of different places. And again, since we're in this hunt for the delegates, you know, now we're getting to the point where it's about almost marginal. Can I get 10 more percent here and 20 more percent there? What can we can we pull out voters in enough places to get me to, to 10 more delegates? Or? That is the perfect segue to my next question for <laughs> okay. you, which is this is going to become a delegate battle now. Yes. And um, the way in which uh, the as you know, you know, also all too well. But as we've been talking about on this podcast, you know, Democrats award their delegates proportionally, which um, means two things. It means, one, it is difficult to get some massive delegate lead because even the second or third place candidate, if they're above 15 percent statewide or in congressional districts, they're accumulating delegates as well. There's no winner take all. So you can't sort of just like completely (laughs) trounce the competition and have them come up with a goose egg if they're over 15 percent. That's one. But two, on the... On the flip side of that coin, it has also been proven because of that allocation that once you get a substantial lead in pledge delegates, it is very hard for the second place person to overtake you because you're both accumulating delegates. That's exactly right. And as you know, in 2020, what is different in previous years, you also had what we call the unpledged delegates or superdelegates. And previously, candidates would be vying for those, and that was part of your delegate count. Now we're in a situation where going into the convention, you have these same unpledged delegates. And don't forget, you may have a candidate who has you know, a swath of delegates. They may not make enough to get to the nomination, but they may have enough to have some leverage, right, and do some bartering in a brokered convention. And and. So you come in with your pledge delegates. There is, you know, the first round of voting on the and you're spo- everybody votes the way they are committed to voting. It's that second round where, again, you may not have had enough to overtake someone, but can you get enough to overtake them on the ground, on the floor of the convention where you are working those superdelegates, those unpledged delegates, to try to get yourself over that number. Now, we haven't seen a second ballot at a Democratic convention since 1952. Uh, The rules are built in such a way to um, try and coalesce around a frontrunner and delegates. But this is now my biggest question. Those rules worked in a way that um, when there have been close delegate contests, let's say the last two, 2008 (laughs) and 2016, went all the way through the calendar, through the June primaries, and uh, there was a delegate leader at the end of that. In 2008, it was Barack Obama. In 2016, it was Hillary Clinton. And they're the ones that ended up with the nomination because that's re- even apart from what you're saying about the new superdelegate rules, that's the, that is how the rules sort of work to allow that to happen. My question to you is <laughs> what we are seeing, though, right now is the establishment coming behind a guy who is most likely 
after Super Tuesday, going to be behind in the delegate count. I, I, you know, again, we'll see what happens. But I, I don't think that's a crazy thought that Bernie Sanders is still going to be the delegate leader sure. after Super Tuesday. And so when the rebellious outsider revolutionary candidate that the establishment in the party may not think is their best chance against Donald Trump as the nominee emerges as the delegate leader. What is different this time is that you may end up getting to the convention and the person with the most delegates, a plurality of delegates, if not a majority, is the one that the sort of power structure and establishment inside the party actually wants to take the nomination away from. And that is what is potentially so harmful to the party, potentially. It is. And the irony of it is, of course, these new rules are the way that Senator Sanders, this is what they argued for. As you remember, after 2016, just for those who don't know, there was a reform commission. Senator Sanders had a number of people on that commission. There were others from the DNC and and people who had been in Hillary's campaign. And, you know, caucuses were debated, the superdelegate. This was the compromise. This is what, and it was very contentious, I can tell you, you know, the um, Congressional Black Caucus. I mean, there were a lot of people very upset about this. It was like a year and a half process. I mean, oh, yeah. Was, yeah. And I was at the meeting where they took the final vote and it was very tense. Um, and there were people on all sides, actually, of the quote unquote establishment. So, um, yes, it, it could do harm to the party. I think you're already seeing Senator Sanders set up that narrative a bit that this is because that has the way he has campaigned for a long time, that it's him against the establishment. Now, the irony of it is, as the front runner, as the person with the most delegates, You are the establishment, technically. (laughs) So he's got to walk that fine line and decide, are you going to just own it and be the front runner and say, I've got the delegates, I've got the votes, this is my party now, and probably stop attacking the Democratic Party and say, we got to galvanize behind one person and focus on beating Donald Trump. Uh, That's what I would advise. But certainly we are... No question, I think we can all see it, in for uh, some real uh, bartering, if you will, <laughs> wheeling and dealing. Um, and, and I hate the More thought, so than usual. More, Much more so than usual, uh, in part, ironically, because of these change in the rules. Um, I will just tell you what you just said about Senator Sanders is so interesting. Just watching his Twitter feed today and seeing how he's, he and his campaign are reacting to the Buttigieg dropout and the Klobuchar dropout. There is an alternate universe in which you might imagine a Senator Sanders messaging around that saying, like, see the defeat of the more moderate candidates. They weren't able to get traction. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, I welcome their supporters into our fight now. You know, I mean, he even though he knows he's not he knows he's not getting Amy Klobuchar or Pete Buttigieg's <laughs> endorsement. And he knows that his supporter that their supporters are probably not ideologically aligned with him. But he didn't use it as a moment to show defeat on that side of the ledger. He used it as a moment to welcome their supporters in. You see a candidate, I think, who's trying to learn he, with the knowledge he knows, he does have to, uh, as you said, wear that mantle of establishment and frontrunner if indeed that's what he is. And don't forget, uh, uh, Mayor Pete does have, I think Klobuchar has seven delegates. Now, when you're going, but when we, if we get down to very close, intense, tight numbers, you know, in that first round of voting, those, those, um, uh, delegates can say, okay, well, I'm, I guess I'm going to go with Senator Sanders, or I guess I'm going to go with Biden. That's the other reason to be having a welcoming message, because you you're going to want every single delegate you can get. I mean, 
dirty little secret about this whole process is those pledge delegates um, that are awarded based on results in primaries and caucuses are not actually legally bound. I mean, they're on that first ballot. They're, you're talking about ones that are um, awarded to candidates who dropped out, but even the ones who have candidates in are not legally bound on that first ballot. And so there could be a ton of horse trading in a way that we don't normally see beyond just the superdelegates. Those pledge delegates are up for grabs. Absolutely. And again, when you come down to having these intense negotiations on a first round, you know, if you may could see a scenario where whether it's Biden or let's say it could be Biden or um, uh, Senator Sanders, you're calling through those those delegates to try to convince them to come over to you. So if you've been trashing those people, that's not a good way to get them to come over to you. Better to have been kind of their candidate when they got out of the race. I promise to the listeners of The Daily DC, <laughs> this is just the beginning of many, many conversations about delegates yes. and a potential contested convention. Karen Finney, thank you so much for being here. Always great to be here. A special thanks also to our audience. Remember, we publish a new episode every weeknight, so please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. While you're there, please consider leaving a rating or a comment. It helps people find the show. And if you want to tweet about the podcast, please do so. Use the hashtag TheDailyDC. We'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.